Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. We're going to get into the Word this morning. I, uh, my heart is full and my head is swirling with uh, what I heard this morning. Several things that Cash said were things going through my heart this morning as I was just spending time with the Lord yesterday and today and uh, just praying about what to speak on. There are places that are special to God. Do you know that? There are certain places that are special to heaven. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. We saw this this year as the 70th anniversary of of, uh, Israel's founding. We have moved the headquarters of our, our, uh, our embassy to Jerusalem. It's a big deal. And, uh, you know, some people think, ah, it's just a political thing, but I'm telling you, it's a bigger deal than that. There is something about Jerusalem that God says, I will place my name on that city. Isn't that an interesting thing? So it begs the question, what is it about this city that is so hotly contended for? What's the deal with this city of Jerusalem that, I mean, all down through history, this thing has been... the, 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 the leadership of the city has been traded back and forth. There's been a war over this city and now the nation of which it is the capital. There's, this is a highly contested city. And you can look in the, the political, the physical realm, the political realm, and you can come up with a lot of reasons and, you know, just recent uh, world events, even over the last uh, the last 20, 30 years, but especially over the last several hundred years, you can point to a lot of reasons that Jerusalem is contested over. But I would propose to you that there's more reason than that. The reason that it's politically contested over is because there's something spiritual about that city. And so I usually don't preach on that kind of thing, but I, I want to touch on it because I believe that what Israel is spiritually is a picture of what the church is spiritually, and then there's an application for us individually, okay? So there's a whole lot to talk about this morning, so we're just going to jump in. But now that we've prayed for the missionaries, I want you to extend your right hands to me, all right? (laughs) Father, help me this morning. Grace me. Lord, the things you've been speaking to me over the last number of months, I pray that you'd help me to articulate. And Lord, I ask God that I would say what you're saying and nothing more and nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Hallelujah. All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Listen to this. Uh, Prior to this, verse 18, he talks about, uh, well, look at verse, verse 18. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or a, such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them. He's referring to when Moses brought the children of Israel to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they heard from God and it shook and peals of lightning and thunder and, and the smoke and the fire and And everybody was scared spitless. And they said, Moses, they said, Mo, 
you go hear from God and tell us what he says, because this freaks us out. And even it says here that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Verse 20, because they could not bear what was commanded, if even an animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is the man who spoke with God face to face. He would disappear into the cloud that's burning with fire, and he would emerge with his face glowing. And even Moses that had those kind of experiences said, I'm trembling with fear. So then the writer of Hebrews shifts gears and said, you have not come to that type of mountain. And it signified the old covenant, the giving of the law to the children of Israel. He's saying that what we have in the new covenant is signified by something else. And he picks that up in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Zion, Mount Zion is the, is the place where Jerusalem is built. It's, it, was, it was known as Mount Zion. It was, it's known as the city of God. It's also known as the city of David or the city of the great king. And it, it's the earthly Jerusalem. But God is so affectionate towards this city that he identifies the heavenly Jerusalem that he's going to send down from heaven to earth he, he identifies it with this city, this earthly, physical city that David chose. And God said, no, because you chose it, David, I'm going to choose it, and I'm going to place my name on it. Matter of fact, God is so affectionate towards this city that that is the place where Jesus will return. There's something about this place, something that was established in a physical place on the earth. It's the headquarters, if you will, of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish people. But there's a principle. Scripture says that it's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Jewish people had a promised land, but that is not, this principle is not isolated to the Jewish people. You and I are meant to have a promised land as well. Cash and Olivia are about to go and conquer their promised land. There's something about hearing from God where you're supposed to go and planting your feet on it. Amen. It's like Cash said. He said he, they could reach Sudanese people here. There, there are Sudan, there's, there's places. Minneapolis, Minnesota is a place of a large Sudanese population. And there are some people called to Minneapolis so they can reach Sudanese people. But there are people who are called to move, uproot their life, and go to a place and put down roots and stake their claim for the kingdom of heaven in a geographical location to reach those same people. And that place is a very significant thing. A number of years ago, I did a, a series on a theology of the land. It's kind of a weird concept, but it's scriptural. There are locations that are significant to God. In fact... The way God operates is he wants to raise up men and women as sent ones. That's the meaning of the phrase apostles. Even though we're not all called to occupy the office of an apostle, we are all called to be an apostolic people. Jesus called a group of men. He called them disciples or disciplined or taught ones with the end zone, the end goal of them becoming sent ones. God brings us in, disciples us, teaches us, disciplines us to send us out with his purposes. But they're sent ones to locations, to places. Acts 17, Paul said, God hath chosen the times and places in which men should live. 
The reason God chooses the place where we're supposed to live is because our inheritance, our promised land, our destiny in the purposes, in the economy of God are connected to geographical locations. So where you live is of the utmost importance. I just met a precious couple this morning from Nicaragua. Why are they living here? I believe God sent them here because they have an inheritance in the spirit in Iowa. So they uprooted their existence and moved to Iowa because they have an inheritance here. God called them here to this place. God chooses the times and places in which men should live. And so there's something significant about Jerusalem, but there's an interesting passage in, I want to say it's First Chronicles, where, or Second Chronicles, where, no, it's First Chronicles, where Solomon is praying and he says to God, God, you, you said you have not chosen a place to establish your name. You have, you have not chosen a place to build your temple. But my father chose Jerusalem and you chose my father. It's an interesting principle that it wasn't so much that God chose this city, but David did, and David, David positioned himself to be chosen by God, and David chose a city, and so now, from now on, God said, I'm going to put my name there. It's a principle. So we can derive from that principle in Scripture. God doesn't have to choose Ankeny. I do. And then I need to position myself to be chosen by him. That if I'll be a man, if I'll be a person that, that God will choose, I can stake my claim for the kingdom of God in Ankeny. It can, it can become a place that he will place his name. God is looking for a man or a woman who will take ownership of the place that they have been assigned to. And if they will choose a place and lay their life down for that place, God will choose that place and visit that place. And Jerusalem was like the hallmark, it was like the, the first, the token city. It was an example to all of us on how God operates and God chose this city, an eternal city where God's going to place his name. And so a, a number of months ago, I was, I, I don't even remember how I came across this, this thought, but I was, it was one day I was just spending some time with the Lord and I came across something that triggered this thought and I began to wonder, why Jerusalem? What was it about David that was so consumed with this city, Jerusalem? He was, he was consumed. When David became the king of all the tribes in his third anointing, he was anointed by Samuel, then he was anointed by Judah, the tribe of Judah, but when he was anointed by the other tribes and he became the king of all of Israel, his third anointing, it was the anointing where he really began to step into all that God had called him to. The first thing on his royal agenda was get Jerusalem conquered. It was, it was, the, it, it was a, 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 a Jebusite city that at one time was known as Jabus, and it was a stronghold. But it's not the first time we see David going to Jerusalem. Many years earlier, David had killed this giant Goliath. And when David killed Goliath, I think I might have mentioned this recently, David took that big old giant's head and drug it by the beard and took it with him. I don't know how big that head was, but that's a gruesome picture. But David took that giant's head. He had a giant sword and a giant head. <laughs> he kept the sword, but he brought the head where? To Jerusalem. It was a pagan city, and he, but he brought it to that city. And it begs the question, 
Why? What was the deal with Jerusalem? I believe it's because David understood there's something significant about this geographic location and I want it. And I believe it was a prophetic announcement decades before he would ascend to the throne saying, that is going to be the place where I rule from. And just as a token, in your face, devil, in your face with amazing grace, I want to show you that I conquered a pagan giant and I'm dragging his head so this dead head will overlook this city and it'll be a reminder to you I'm coming for you next. And David took the city. And matter of fact, David's access to this city was through a water shaft that was most likely the reason that city was ever established in the first place. So I've got a lot of things going through my mind, but let me just boil it down to this, okay? There's something about these three components of this city. Number one, there's a water shaft. Number two, there was a significant throne in that city. And number three, there was an altar built in the place of that city. A water shaft, a throne, and an altar. And each one of those three things holds significance for you and I both corporately as the church, because the writer of Hebrews right here talks about the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And he then refers to it as the church of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ can be referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We are the new, we're a New Testament expression, a spiritual expression of the physical reality in Jerusalem. Now, that needs, that needs a word of caution. Because there are some people that interpret Scripture as if God is done completely with Israel and with Jerusalem, with the Jewish people, and now they ha that has been completely replaced by the church of Jesus Christ, that the covenant God made with Abraham is now continued through the church and the Jewish people have been cut off and God no longer has a purpose for them. And that belief, that theological school of thought is known as replacement theology. And that is inaccurate. That's, that's, that, is, that is not good theology because Paul was very clear in Romans 9 and Romans 11 that God still has a purpose for the Jewish people. And that all Israel will be saved. Now, my personal opinion, I don't take that to mean that every person of Jewish blood is one day going to bow their knee and be saved before they die. But I do believe as a nation, they will welcome their Messiah. And matter of fact, that is one of the contingencies for Jesus' return. Now, that depends upon your viewpoint. Do you believe in pre-tribulational rapture or post-tribulational rapture? If you're a pre-tribulational rapture individual, then what you, then, and a lot of people within that school of thought believe that Jesus can return at any time, and therefore they don't believe that all of Israel has to be saved before Jesus gets back because it ain't happened yet. We can get in the weeds on that one. Suffice it to say, whether you believe that's the, the, the rapture of the saints or you believe the rapture of the saints and the second coming where Jesus comes to make war are one and the same, I'm telling you, whichever way you interpret it, before Jesus comes to wrap up human history, Israel will be a Christian nation. 
they will welcome back their Messiah. Jesus himself said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, the Jewish leaders will welcome back their Messiah. There's still an inheritance that God has in the Jewish people. They are his people. And the, 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 the end time church will be Jew and Gentile as one. Now we already are, but we have not seen the fulfillment of that as of yet. That's another subject. So, I am not saying that the fulfillment of this picture in the church negates God's plans for Israel. But there is a physical purpose for Jerusalem, for the people, for the, uh, God's people, the Jewish people, the, the eternal covenant he made with both Abraham and David. He's still going to make good on that and all Israel will be saved. But I am telling you there are clearly scriptures in the Old Testament that were clearly made to Israel that now apply to the church. So it's not either or, it's both and. We have been grafted in. And Israel was cut off through unbelief, but they will be grafted in. And one of our purposes is to make the, the Jewish people jealous by living in the benefits of covenant. And they see that and are, are provoked to jealousy. So, why Jerusalem? Jerusalem, the first time we see this city show up on the radar in Scripture, was way back in the, the Old Testament, and it was known as the city of Salem, or the city of peace. Jerusalem was built on an underground river and there was a water shaft that, that, that gave access to this underground supply. Now, if you've ever been to the Middle East, I never have. Uh, I, I've had a couple chances and just never worked out. The last time I had someone approach me, there was a, there was a, a group of pastors that they wanted to send from Iowa and they said, your, your entire trip will be paid for. And I said, I can't, I'm scheduled to speak at a conference in Iowa. And so I said, I won't go. And they said, well, we'll send so-and-so in your place. And when I arrived at the conference, the guy who went in my place was there to give a testimony about his trip. And I was bummed. <laughs> but if you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll find out that that, that whole region, the, one of the most important things about that part of the world, of course, any part of the world, but it's just, it's, it's much harder to come by in that part of the world, is water. And so cities, communities would be built around these water supplies and they would, they would look for water access and they would build communities around it. And Jerusalem was built around this underground river that David alludes to in Psalm 46. He says, there is a river that makes glad the city of our God. He's speaking of a physical river, but David being the prophet poet that he was, was also alluding to a river that Jesus would talk about in John chapter 7. That out of our bellies shall flow rivers of living water when the Spirit is given to us, and that happened at Pentecost. So this city was built around this, this well, this water shaft. And so when David came to take the city of Jerusalem, the Jebusites mocked him from the city wall, and they said this. They said, even the blind and lame could protect this from you, David. They laughed at him. They said, there's no way you can get in because they understood the only opening was this water shaft. They would have literally had to dive into a pool of water on the outside of the city wall, then swim through the water, deep into, the, into this pond, and find this, this opening, this water shaft, and swim underwater through a cave-like tunnel for 
a long way. I forget the, the measure, but I mean, you'd have to be an Olympic level swimmer with a lot of guts and able to keep your anxiety under control because there's no like, can you imagine? Doesn't that just freak you out for a moment? You're swimming in there and you're hitting a rock. Oh, there's a turn. <laughs> They're swimming through there. They'd have to swim down and then they would come up in a well at the bottom of a long shaft that came up in the city. So after this swim, if you don't die, if you don't drown and plug the water shaft with your dead body, you would come up at the bottom of this well, and then you're hoping, hope no one's getting any water out today, because they'll drop their pail on my head and tell them we're, we're attacking, and they, you know, you're kind of in a vulnerable position. You're at the end of a shaft, they just shoot a couple of arrows and, you know, draw your body out. Then they would have to climb out of the well, run and open the, the city gate so that the conquering army could come in. They were so confident there was no way this was going to happen. But here's the interesting thing. Their strength was their vulnerability. And David had some crazy guys, some mighty men. And one of them volunteered to swim through the water shaft, and they took the city. It's a crazy thing. Now, as a side note, Often you see this strategy in ancient cities where they would, they would protect the water access because they had to build on water and that was the strength of that location but it was also the vulnerability. Babylon was taken because they dried up the riverbed and they were drunk one night. The guards were drunk and forgot to drop the iron gate and so they marched in on the riverbed and took the city. And I do believe there's a principle for you and I in that. And I've seen it many times. There are people who have been deeply touched by the presence and the power of God. But the riverbeds that are established in your life, those avenues of the Spirit, the flow of the Spirit of God, those, those avenues by which the Lord begins to minister to you, you need to tend them well. Because when those riverbeds become dry, the very thing that heaven used to access you, the enemy will use to access you as well. And there are a lot of people who have been touched by the Spirit of God only to fail to steward their own heart in those things. And the enemy will march in on those things, that, that openness, that desire for spiritual reality, and you don't tend it in the Spirit of God. And you don't keep the waters flowing. You need to stay in the wet places. Jesus said that the enemy searches for dry places. And so we have this thing. The reason it was established was a well. And then this, the ruler of the city, the first time we see this city show up on the radar in Scripture, it was ruled by an interesting fella, mystical fella. As a church, Hartland's probably heard more about this church than the vast, I mean this guy, than the vast majority of churches because I've been so intrigued with him over the years. But he's only mentioned in three passages in all of Scripture. And that was a king called, he was, his name means king of righteousness, and he was the ruler of the, the king, or he was the king of a city called Peace, or the Prince of Peace. His name was literally Melchizedek. And he was the ruler of the city. And so what happened, when we see this city of Jerusalem the first time, it's, the, it's Salem at the time, and we see it because he marches out to bless Abraham. 
When Abraham is returning from the, it says, literally, from the slaughter of the kings, Abraham went and rescued his nephew Lot and the king of Sodom because Sodom had been taken by these kings. So Abram gets his boys and they go and they, they rescue him and he come back. And Melchizedek, this strange mystical king, marches out with wine and bread and breaks bread with Abraham and blesses him. And in the same book that mentions him, the only book that mentions Melchizedek in the New Testament, we see this phrase, that the greater always blesses the lesser. So, According to Hebrews, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, refers to Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God. Now that is weird. Because there is no Judaism yet. <laughs> there, is no, there is no Jewish religion. The, the chosen people were a guy, were, you know, was a guy. It was Abraham. He was just beginning. There was no covenant with God. There was no covenant people. It was this individual who had, had found favor with God, Abraham, and he was being blessed by a guy who was a priest of the Most High God. Who is this guy? And he, he sits on a throne in this city of Jerusalem that is built around this water shaft that goes to a well. And David, the only other guy in Scripture that has a revelation of who Melchizedek is, wants that city. And that's why I believe David was so attracted to Jerusalem. Because David was a young boy, a boy of the Torah. He had studied the word. And we have this mention of Salem or Jerusalem. And it's ruled by Melchizedek, a man who is a priest of the Most High God. Moses recognizes that he is a priest. But it's not until we get to the psalm, Psalm 110, that David says that Melchizedek was more than this anomaly. He was more than this fluke of supernature. He was more than just a one-off, this guy who was anointed as a priest, you know, uh, kind of arbitrarily. He was one person, never to be repeated. David had a revelation that Moses didn't. And that revelation was that Melchizedek was of the was of a priestly order, the order of Melchizedek. So this king established an order of priesthood. Then we get to the New Testament in, in Hebrews, the only other passage that mentions this mystical dude, and it's in, in ancient vernacular, that's pretty much how it refers to him, this mystical dude. I mean, it's not what it says in the Hebrew, but it's, it's saying the same thing. He's a mystical dude. Who is this guy? It says he has no beginning or end. Some people uh, uh, believe that when they talk like that, that it means that Melchizedek was Jesus pre-incarnate, or what theologians call a theophany, a pre-incarnate Christ or Jesus before he came in the flesh. I don't believe that's true because Hebrews says he was a priest of the Most High God, and it says that in order to be a priest, you have to be chosen from among the people so that you can represent them. So he had to be a physical man, but make no mistake about it, he was a foreshadowing of Jesus, so much so that David says that the priesthood of the Messiah is under the auspices of that priestly order. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, and so are you, because you are priest kings. And what was, what was Melchizedek? He was a priest and a king. There was a merging in this priestly order. There was a merging of royalty and priesthood, priest kings. 
Jesus was spoken of as the priest to come in the Old Testament. He was spoken of as the king to come, the Messiah. He was also spoken of as the prophet to come. And David is an example of that, a man who operated as a prophet, a priest, and a king. But David didn't do so by violating the law. He did so by breaking in through revelation into a higher law. Because every priesthood has a law, a structure of worship, a place of worship, and a priestly order. And David was so hungry to get in, and he was kept out by the Jewish law. That's why uh, David cried out, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? David understood, according to Jewish law, the only person that could ascend would be of the tribe of Levi, but David was hungry, is there another way in? And by that cry had a revelation of this other priestly order of Melchizedek. And that priestly order was tied to this city. So when David, as a young man, kills Goliath, and he, he hits him in the head with the rock and goes off and lops his head off with the, big old, with the big old sword, he drags that big old head, I say by the beard, it just seems more dramatic, drags Goliath's head and brings it to Jerusalem, I believe it's because of the revelation that David had that nobody else seems to have in the Old Testament of who Melchizedek really was and what he really was. He was another order. He was a priestly order. There was a legal basis upon which David could step around some of the limitations of the law. That's why David could eat the showbread and wear, wear the priestly garments and why David, in spite of committing adultery and murder, could still ask God for mercy even though under the, under the Levitical law it, it demanded that David be killed for his sin, David would still appeal for mercy. Why? Because he found another basis to approach God on. It wasn't some arbitrary thing. He found it in the word, but it was his hunger that gave him that revelation. And that revelation was tied to a city because there was not only a water shaft that built it, there was a throne that David understood. Melchizedek, he understood there was something about Melchizedek that had a relationship with God that predated Jewish law. It was what Hebrews calls the eternal priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was for time. It, was a, it began with Moses and it ended with Jesus. Let me say it again. It ended with Jesus. Because now the eternal priesthood is the order of Melchizedek and Jesus is the high priest. And you and I come in as priests and kings with him. We are a nation of priests, a holy nation, Peter says. So we walk in royal authority. That is your authority to make things happen on earth. You are called to rule and reign, not merely in eternity, but now. You are called to release the word of the Lord, to impose the will of our king on earth. There's a reason that God chose that time in human history to send his son. Galatians chapter 4, it says, God's in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean, the fullness of time? It means that there were certain dynamics in history that came to fruition that were necessary for God to accomplish what he desired to accomplish. And one of them, I am convinced, was the Roman world. Because the Roman world imposed a one language on the entire world so that the Bible 
could be, could be written in one language that could be disseminated across the earth. Paul was a scholar who was schooled in, in the Grecian language. And the Grecian language of all, all the languages written in history was probably the most accurate and vivid to communicate the gospel. They also conquered the then known world and built a system of roads by which they could walk on these roads and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was a time ripe for the gospel. But there was another dynamic and it was a political structure where you had an emperor who was the king or king of kings and he would have subservient kings, vassal kings, that he would assign all over the then known world. And so you had Caesar who, who appointed Herod and he gave Herod a kingdom and he said, you rule this for me. And it was Herod's job to discern the will of Caesar and carry it out on the earth. So when Jesus turns and says to you and I, I get... Fear not, little flock, I give to you a kingdom just as my Father hath given me a kingdom. He's not referring to the complete kingdom of God in that particular context of that scripture. He's talking about the realm of influence God has assigned to you. And it's your job to hear the heart of the emperor. And then to take that back to your kingdom, your realm of influence, and express the wishes of the king of kings in the kingdom that he has assigned to you. That's really the idea behind this word, ecclesia. Ecclesia was the word that Jesus hijacked and utilized to call his, his new institution the church. The ecclesia literally means called out ones, but the idea in that age was that the emperor would have a body of people he would call out from the people. He would pull them in, give them his, he would share with them his vision for his expanding empire, and then it was their job to go back and legislate to carry out the wishes of the empire, of the emperor in the empire, the ever-expanding Roman empire. And so you and I are the ecclesia of God. We are to get with God, and through revelation, we hear what he wants, we get in the book, we find out his blueprint for what he wants to ha have happen on the earth, we listen to his voice for prophetic revelation, and he speaks to us, and then we get involved in intercessory legislation to begin to push the crown rights of our king on this world, and then we just go out and we march it out in practical activation and implementation on the earth, and we begin to manifest the kingdom of God on earth. Thus fulfilling the prayer of Jesus that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our blood-bought assignment. And so we have this thing. We are priests and kings. So there's this water shaft. They built a city around it. But for some reason, God chose this Melchizedek guy to be the king that first shows up. We don't know if he was the founding king, or he, but he was the one that showed up the first time it's mentioned. And he was a unique king because he was a priest king. He was a ruler of people, but a priest of the Most High God. And before God, he represented man, and before man, he represented God. He was a go-between, a priest. But he was a priest with authority to carry out the edicts that were in his heart, connected to heaven. 
But then we see another phenomena show up around the city several chapters later in the book of Genesis. I want, to, I want to say it was chapter 14 where we see Melchizedek show up, and then chapter 22 we see Abram returning to that place because God had given Abram a promise that I'm going to make your family as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abram saying, God, I don't even have a child yet. And he said, I'm going to give a child to you and your wife, who is menopause, is a long lost memory. She is beyond her childbearing years, and I'm going to break in, and it's going to be a child of promise, not a child born of natural means. And it was a picture of us being born again. We're not born of the flesh. It's not by natural means, but it's a supernatural birth by the Spirit of God, and that was that picture. And so Abram has his son, and then one troubling morning, the Lord speaks to him and says, Abraham. And Abram says, here I am, Lord. And he says, take your son, comma, your only son, comma, and sacrifice him on the mount that I shall tell you about. That is not the verse you hang on your refrigerator. That is not one of those encouraging words that you get in your quiet time. It rocked Abraham. And so it says in that passage, it's a beautiful thing, it says he got up early the next morning. <laughs> I'd have slept in. <laughs> he got up early. Can you imagine when Sarah said, Abe, where are you going? Uh, Isaac and I are going to go worship. You know, we'll be back. He, he can't bring himself to tell his wife. And it says that he, he loaded up a donkey with his, he had his son and the supplies and had the servant and they make their way to Mount Moriah, which means where God is revealed and where God is heard. And they go to the foot of the mountain and Abram says this to his servant, you stay here while I and the boy go to worship. He's going to sacrifice his son and he refers to it as worship because it was done out of obedience to God. How you even compute that, I, I don't know. But there's this vivid picture in that passage where it says that they, they climbed the mountain together and it's obvious that this is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. And there was unity among the father and the son it wasn't that the father took the son captive or the son, son made a decision the father begrudgingly went along with. It was There was unity and agreement between the father and the son. And it says that Abraham carried the fire and the knife. They would, they would literally carry a bowl of hot coals that they tended. They kept the fire going because they didn't have lighters and matches. You know, they had to, they had to keep their fire going all the time. It's a, it's a vivid picture. Their, their livelihood uh, depended upon it. It's a picture of us spiritually. You've got to keep the fire going. You've got to live by water and keep your fire tended. And so Abram carried the fire and the knife, and that represented the wrath of God that had to be poured out on the son, and then the ultimate death, that would, that would, that the knife that would take Isaac's life. And then it says, and Isaac carried the wood. It's a powerful picture. That here's, here's Jesus climbing up Mount Calvary. He's carrying his own cross. He's got the wood. 
But we know from this passage that in the background, in the unseen realm, there's the Father carrying the fire and the knife. To spare you and I, the Father's going to pour out his wrath and take the life of his own son. And they climb the mountain. And Isaac asks his dad when they get there, the dad starts to build the altar. And this is not an uncommon thing for this young boy. His dad's a man of God. Sacrifices on altars were a way of life. He was a man of God. But Isaac notices there's something missing. He said, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice on the altar? And he gets his son to climb up on there. By this time, Abraham's an old man. This boy could have overpowered him, but he binds his son and he lays him on the altar and the son submits. And Abram lifts his hand with a knife. I mean, it's just seconds before his knife will plunge the chest of his boy and he hears the voice again, Abraham. And again he says, here I am. And God says, withhold your hand. For now I know that you fear me. For you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he says this. I will provide myself a lamb. And if you're into grammar, the difference between the old covenant picture of what we just explained and the new covenant expression or summation, fulfillment of that picture is where you place the comma. In the old covenant God says I will provide myself comma. I I will provide myself a lamb. But in the new covenant he's saying I will provide myself and I'll be the lamb. And so God stops Abram and he looks over and there's a ram caught in the thicket. His horns are caught in this bush and he goes over and he kills it. And it's God supplying the sacrifice that Abraham needed. And there was something about that moment in human history. I don't think you and I have any way to comprehend the magnitude of that act of obedience and what it did in the heart of God and what it established in human history and on the earth. There was something about the well, and there's a picture of a, for us in the New Testament, in the church and as individuals, about that access to water and the well. And there's something about that throne that is established from which God can rule and reign. But there's something about that sacrifice that was right outside the city, and it would become the place where David would, after, later on, would buy the threshing floor of Aruna. You remember where David counts the fighting men and all of a sudden an angel shows up with a sword and David is freaked out. He's a seer and he sees in the spirit. There's a plague. The city is, there's people dying all over. The 185,000 people died in that plague. But David sees this is more than a sickness. This is an angel with a a sword and he cries out to God and and he, he, he runs to this threshing floor. He's going to make a sacrifice. Why there? I believe it's because David understood the significance of this spot. And he, he goes to Arun, he says, I want to buy your threshing floor. And Arun says, you can have it for free. You can have the lamb, you can have the sheep, you can have the wood, you have it all. He, David said, no, God forbid that I would offer him that which costs me nothing. That principle is a lost principle in the modern church. 
There's something that we have bought into that has lost this principle and therefore lost the authority and the attraction that heaven has in this picture of Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. Jesus paid it all for you to go to heaven. But there's a price for you to pay for heaven to come to earth. And God is looking for those who will sacrifice. And there's something about this, this lavish sacrifice, this extreme sacrifice, that out of obedience, Abraham lifts the knife and God says, stop. And there's something that was established in the heart of Abraham and therefore in the spirit. I would, I would propose to you there was a permanent portal opened up in the spirit over that place. And those, those places in the spirit, that's why that place was so hotly contested for. And David buys it. He buys it at, at a supreme price and he builds an altar. And God relents. And David keeps that place and he tells his son Solomon, that's where you're going to build the temple to God. And that will be the place where God says, that's where my heart and my eyes will be continually. It was this extravagant sacrifice in Abraham that David understood by revelation. There was a man who had a priesthood that we don't even understand. It's an eternal priesthood. It's this priest king. There's something God wants to establish on the earth. Authority and intercession to establish a city where he will keep his name. And then David understood there was something of a sacrifice by the father of our faith. And I'm going to establish the house for his name on that spot. And Solomon would extend the walls from the city of David to encompass around this altar, encompass around this, the temple, so that the, now Jerusalem, the city of peace, would have the water shaft and the throne and the altar. And it was a picture of what you and I are called to in the Spirit and Hebrews chapter 12 says, we have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched. We have come to Mount Zion. It's referring, Mount Zion is Jerusalem. But we've come to the spiritual Jerusalem. There was a type established in the physical that God is still committed to back there. But you and I have come to the type, the, the spiritual reality rather, of this type that we function in. And you need to understand that there is a water shaft of supply. That there is a throne from which you rule. And there is an altar upon which you make extravagant sacrifices that move the heart of God. And God wants to raise up Jerusalems, so to speak, all over the earth. God did not choose Jerusalem. There's passages that says he did. But Solomon said he didn't. So what we know is that God chose it because David did. And God is looking for men and women who will choose a city like you, Cash and Olivia. Saying, I'm going to, when God said, I want to see you in the Sudan. Then if you, at, at, by sacrifice and say, I'm going to uproot my family and I'm digging, I'm putting my roots down. This is my promised land. And Lord, I'm asking, Lord, put your eyes on this place. Lord, we're asking that you would establish your kingdom here. I am a vassal king under the emperor in heaven. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We don't have time to get into this morning. Go ahead and stand so you know I'm going to quit. This picture, the order in which it happened in, the, the, in, in history, in a very real sense, is the reverse in which it happens in the believer's life. There is an altar, an eternal altar that Jesus died upon, and he was the once and for all sacrifice, which opened the door for him to create a throne in our heart and a throne in our midst, and which in turn gives us access to the river that makes glad the city of God. It's Calvary before Pentecost. But it's this flow of God, and it's all accessible to you and I. Jesus paid the price so that he could win your heart, so that you in turn would lay your life down for others. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I'm asking God that you would Take these various things we talked about this morning and drive them home to us, Lord. And Lord, help us to see what you're establishing. Lord, that you long to have a people that build a throne from which you can rule with their worship. That becomes a source of supply for the region. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.